0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. House Speaker Joseph Shikarchi is getting serious about Rhode Island's housing crisis. Last week, he unveiled 14 bills to address the problem. But will he even be in the state house much longer? He's also considering a run for Congress— now that David Cicilline has decided to step down. We'll talk about that and more after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with House Speaker Joseph Shikarchi, a proud graduate of Mount St. Charles Academy. Speaker, thank you for joining us today.
1: It is my pleasure to be here and always come on another proud graduate of Mount St. Charles Academy show. Anytime you ask me yet, I'll be back.
0: (laughs) You recently unveiled a package of 14 bills
1: aimed at addressing the state's housing crisis. So first, tell us about the scope of the problem. It's easy to diagnose that we have an affordable housing crisis and a homelessness crisis. It's very hard to solve because it's so complex. We have a crisis at every level of the housing spectrum. We are dead last in the country on housing permits. We do not have enough uh, workforce housing. We certainly don't have enough affordable housing and even low income housing. Then we have the whole unhoused population, which is another significant problem that's very complex. We have people in that spectrum who are working and still can't afford a home. We have people who have mental health illnesses. We have people who have substance abuse issues. And we have people who just need housing and there is none available. And it's due to the increased demand for housing and the spike in pricing. We've priced our population out of the housing market. What are the, some of the main things that the proposed legislation would do to address this problem? One is to increase production. And the only way I know how to do that is to take down some of the barriers. This particular package is, uses very little taxpayer money. Uh, we are going to put some taxpayer money for, with the TOD, which is called the Transportation-Oriented Development. That came out of some workshops we did with Grow Smart, Rhode Island, and other people, which is to incentivize high-density development, private development in and around transportation hubs, like a train station in Pawtucket, Warwick, North Kingstown, a bus hub here in Providence or other places where there's a bus hub. Yeah. So we got a new
0: bus hub, a, a new train station for Central Falls and Pawtucket. So is that one area where we, uh, you're going to try to incentivize Development and high density development, high density
1: apartment buildings around there, apartment buildings around there, even condominiums around there. It's actually happening already around in and around the Warwick hub. people don't realize that that Warwick has a very interesting we have a bus line a train station and an airport all within walking distance of each other and they're very significant we're looking at the conversion of the former Sheridan hotel into 220 units of apartment we have several private developers in and around that area all within a quarter of a mile walking distance proposing high density development uh, 60 units 80 units 100 units 200 units all being developed in and around that airport So that's an exciting opportunity. How and when and how many of them get built, we'll have to see. But they've been permitted. People have made substantial investments in the permitting process. And we're going to hopefully continue in that phase. And we'd like to look at that. I know there's some development in and around the North Kingstown train station as well. So how many units of new housing do you expect this legislation to produce? Good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I hope a lot. And whatever it is, I can tell you it won't be enough. So first of all, almost all bills with the exception of one do not go into effect until January 1st, 2024. How I'm going to measure that or how anybody should objectively measure is the number of building permits. If our building permits increase significantly, then I think the package will have worked. And if they the building permits are about the same or actually decrease, then obviously we need to look at it and redouble our efforts and figure out something else. This package, other than the TOD, which I talked about, transportation-oriented development, does not use any taxpayer money. It shortens the permitting process in general. Nothing is to prevent any city or town from saying no to any project, but their own consciousness. So they have the right, and they're going to continue to maintain that right and. At least for this session, to say yes or no to any development that comes before them. We're not substituting our judgment for their judgment. You want more housing, but how hard are you going to push communities to approve it? When we talk about communities, I don't like to use a broad brush because I think there's 39 cities and towns and they have different opinions and different appetites for development. I will tell you that some of the more rural communities, it's Say now whether it's true or not. We'll have to wait and see. Say they want development, but they they're poor. They don't have enough money. They have dirt roads. They don't have the infrastructure. There's no bu- bus system out there. We can't afford a- affordable housing. And to me, that's a false noma. That's that's not correct because the reality is affordable housing does not mean low income housing. There has to be an education of what affordable housing really means. Affordable housing, workforce housing, is teachers, policemen, firemen, the children of the people who are saying, no, we don't have the infrastructure for it. They have a lot of land in, in rural Rhode Island, and I think they need to utilize it. One of the other bills would do just that. It would take hospitals, mills, churches, factories, and allow them by right to be converted into residential development without the need for any local approvals. Now, the local community will still have the opportunity to regulate certain parts of that development, but the biggest hurdle is the zone change mm-hmm. from industrial to residential, and we hope to eliminate that as part of one of the bills on our package.
0: Yeah, you talk about some of the rural communities. My colleague Alexa Gagas has written about how Senator Rogers out there in Foster wants to form a coalition of to combat what he calls oppressive legislation that would override local zoning ordinances until towns reached housing goals. Would this legislation do that? What do you say to that?
1: I think he's mistaken, because none of these bills are oppressive. None of these bills override local zoning. So I think this was a fear and a misnomer, which is very common when you talk about affordable housing. Everybody gets afraid. Everybody gets a nimbyism, not in my backyard syndrome. There's nothing in any of these bills, and I challenge anybody in the media or in the elected official world or anywhere to tell me what is oppressive about any one of these bills. What takes away the local control to say yes or no to any project? and the answer to that question is none. So I think their fear or their, their fear or their opposition to something that doesn't exist. And I want to just point out one thing. Their opposition when I say there, I'm talking about the communities, the 6 7 communities that came out against this package was before the legislation was even written. Before it was even finalized. Right, right. I didn't even know anything about it. I didn't we didn't finalize it until Monday. That's the I guess the prejudice you see coming through, the fear of the unknown. So we have to get out there right away against something, even though we don't know what something is. So you might put their fears to rest, but just to be
0: devil's advocate on the other side, you know, we've got this law that says each community, 39 cities and towns, have to have 10% of their housing stock as affordable housing. There's only seven places that do that. That's correct. I mean, is it just going to be up to the cities to have affordable housing? If you're not going to push them, if you're not going to tick off the people
1: from more rural communities by making them do more than they are now. So my hope is that they get the picture. They see what's happening, they see what's coming and I think there's a lot of tools as we go forward. I think I've raised their consciousness. And if they don't act then there are things that we as a general assembly can do. Uh, so, so that as, might be for na- future if, years. Yeah, absolutely. If, this if you look work. at what this is my third year of speaking, you look at what we accomplished in the first two years, this is the next building block and I'm sure there'll be more legislation. We may have to look at a, a more carrot and stick approach. We don't necessarily have to penalize Hurt anybody, but we can start reducing aid accordingly. If the, the population, the school age children is declining, then maybe we need to adjust their uh, formula. And maybe we need to adjust the city and town aid to other communities that are bearing the burden of this. There's a lot of options to do this, but I like, I like to move slowly. I like to move deliberately. That's why I make decisions that way as well. This is the issue for Rhode Island. This is the most compelling issue we have. And we need to continue to make this the number one issue. When I was elected speaker, it was my number one issue. I can t- assure you it's a number one issue for the house. We need to do more housing in general for everybody. And the other point is that if you go talk to the Rhode Island Builders Association, and that's really a collaboration of all small builders in Rhode Island, some bigger ones, but most of them are all you know, mom-and-pop building operations, they never were more excited about a package like this because they live with it every day. They're the ones building the four, five, six houses, 10 houses a year. And they said the red tape is almost insurmountable. And it's really caused some other people to get out of the business or change their business model, go into remodeling and not into new construction. So they're excited about the package. They're excited about the ability to hopefully go through this process much sooner. Uh, and that's what the, the, the all the package of Bill do is to stimulate Private development in the affordable housing and housing area in general.
0: I've seen some criticize you for your day job as a lawyer, where you've handled eviction cases and represented the Warwick Housing Authority. But you're you're also saying there's a serious housing crisis, introducing legislation to hope that you hope alleviates the issue. So how can you do both?
1: Uh, first of all, I haven't done an eviction in about five or six years, but that's beside the point. But the how, the only evictions I've ever done, per se, I can't remember ever doing anyone other than the housing authority, and they're not for non-payment of rent. They're almost, almost always, I shouldn't say not, that most of them are for tenants who have bad conduct. They fight with other tenants. And we have an obligation uh, as the housing authority to protect the residents who live there. So that, it's a process we go through. It's really Uh, you know, apples and oranges, I don't think they intertwine at all. I can become an attorney in, in practice law without any kind of conflict with supporting housing legislation. Matter of fact, a lot of the bills I proposed, would, I would say would be much more tenant friendly than they were landlord friendly. So, shifting to another topic,
0: U.S. Representative David Cicilline just announced that he will leave Congress by June 1st to become president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation. Do you plan to run for Congress? Don't know
1: yet. Giving it some serious consideration, probably make a decision by the end of the month. End of the month? How much money do you have in your campaign account? Approximately $1.7 million. And how much of that could you convert to a, to a federal campaign? I think all of it is eligible to be converted. Uh, I think there's a process very similar to what Seth Magazina did uh, when he had raised a substantial war chest when he was running for governor. He converted most, if not all of it, into his congressional campaign. In 2015, I wrote a column about you at the time. Not your average
0: Joe. That was the headline. At the time, you had $288,000 in your campaign account, and I asked why. And you said your years in politics had taught you to be prepared. You said, I like to keep all my options open. So if an opportunity came, I always wanted
1: to have the resources to make that decision. Do you see this as your opportunity? I think it's an opportunity to consider. I don't necessarily think it's an opportunity that I should do or not do. Well, is it ever going to come
0: up again? Congressmen are not exiting every day except in the last two years. um, We we had two in the last (laughs) 12 months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: So – you know, some people say, you know, you're right. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, I can't remember having an opportunity presented like this where you can run, and, unfo- and if you don't win, you're still the Speaker of the House. So that's certainly something to consider. There's conceal. another headline, but, a free pass. A, free, a, free, pa- a free, uh, free, free pass. But let yes. me explain this to you uh, sincerely. This decision, and I I think I'm speaking for every candidate is in the race, and I understand you know the politics and the pundits involved, and and I'm a, a, as Ted Nisi used to say, a political junkie, just like probably you and uh, many other people. But this is a very personal decision. You know, we can look at it from the outside and always say, well, everyone looks at, well, what's Ed Fitzpatrick going to do? They're looking at it from an outside perspective. They're looking at it from a political perspective. Can he win? Can he lose? Does he live in the first district? Does he? Does he control the party endorsement? Does he? have the funds those are all part of the political equation right when you're the actual candidate there has to be, and I think Sabina Matos said this. There has to be a personal consideration. You have family. You have to move. You have to give mm-hmm. up your law practice. You have to give up the speakership. It's not necessarily the running. It's it's the winning, and yeah. you have to look at all that. And I'm and they present challenges and they present opportunities. So like anything else, I like to be slow and deliberate, make my decision, and and see what the chips let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, you mentioned Ed Fitzpatrick. I'm not running, by the way. You you might be the only one. <laughs> But I mean, for your personal
0: decision, I mean, uh, to be devil's advocate, would you have more power? Could you get more done as Speaker of the House in Rhode Island than you could as a rookie legislator down in in Washington, D.C.?
1: Well, that's a very good question that I'm giving a lot of consideration. Probably not because you would be number 435 right. out of 435. You actually literally would be. Seth Magazina, who's been in office for three months, would be the senior Our congressman. senior congressman, yes, yeah. I, re- I read that in The Globe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it must be true. So um, um, so yeah, that's part of the equation as well. Absolutely, it's part of the equation. But there are opportunities, and you, you just seize them when they come, if, if you're interested, and if not, you weigh them. Look, being Speaker of the House is a great job, and I like it, and I think I do pretty well at it. So I enjoy the job. It's not... Not like I'm out looking for another job, but like, like you said, it was a surprise. Last Tuesday, Congressman Cicilline announced he was retiring. I had about two hours notice more than the media did. And that I respect David and I respect the Rhode Island Foundation for that decision. Not that he needed to give me any kind of advance notice, but so that began an evaluation process, which I'll be evaluating and hopefully make a decision in three to four weeks. You had an opportunity last year too, and you
0: live in the second congressional district. Do you wish you had gone for it and run for the second congressional district
1: seat? No. I had been speaker one year yeah, so yeah. it was just too early. But right now, I feel like the house would be in good shape if I decided to leave. You live in Warwick. That's in the
0: second congressional district. So would you have to move if you ran for CD one?
1: No, you don't have to move. Uh, you, I would move. Would if, I would move. Yeah. I would move. But you're not, it's not required to move. And I'd move after the election. I, I'd move if I won. Where would you move to? Woonsocket, I'm guessing. Well, I'm probably Lincoln. I grew up in Lincoln. Uh, my family still has uh, real estate in Lincoln. Uh, as well. And uh, parts of Providence are beautiful too. So, I mean, it'd be somewhere nicer. I mean, I also at some, at one point many years ago, I owned a, a beautiful condominium in Newport. So there's a lot of great first congressional districts, a great district. I have a lot of friends there and a lot of family there as well. How much would that be held against you that you don't live in the district presently? That would be up to my opponents to try to, but it certainly didn't matter for Seth Magazino. So you're hosting a fundraiser in D.C. Why do that if you're not running for Congress? Well, I did it every year. I did it last year, too. Uh, and I, I think it's the opportunity to go down there, meet with the congressional delegation, talk to people who live down there. There's a lot of Rhode Islanders who live and work in D.C. They're friends of mine. I enjoy D.C. very much. I lived in D.C. for a while. I worked for Senator Pell. And uh, I think D.C. is a great town. And it presents a lot of you know, opportunities and a lot of exciting living options. So we'll look at that. And it's the power of the epicenter of government. That's where the Congress is, that's where the White House is or the Supreme Court is. One of the former Rhode
0: Islanders down in DC is Gina Raimondo. You, you were her campaign manager when she ran for treasurer back in 2010, and she of course, she went on to become governor, and now she's U.S. Commerce
1: Secretary. What has she said about whether you should run for the con- congressional seat? She's encouraged me to run, and, and she thought it would be a good opportunity. But she also said, you know, follow your heart, and whatever your decision is, she will support. And she said to me that I'm doing a good job as Speaker. And she said, you know, you, it's, an, it's a no-lose scenario for you. You can come to Washington, or you can stay there, but you, either way, you'll be, do a good job. All right. So when do you plan to decide again? I told you this twice already. <laughs> In the next three weeks or four weeks. Three or four weeks. All right. Speaker Shikarchi, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: For more coverage of Speaker Shikarchi's housing legislation, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor, follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week.